BFBS. Hello, that was Richard Hutchinson. He was right. It's 4.30 here in central London, and it's sunshine. And I'm Christopher Lee, and this is SITREP, your defence and foreign affairs programme from BFBS Radio 2 in the next 30 minutes. Afghanistan, the road to Kandahar, it's been long and winding, and it's still winding, apparently. The defence budget is Liam Fox under the cosh. Iraq bombings, killing more civilians in Iraq than Afghanistan. Iran, has there really been an assassination attempt on President uh, Ahmadinejad? Afghanistan again, why the Petraeus plan could lead to civil war? Pakistan, check us tonight for din-dins. Checkmate, Mr Zadari, or is all going stale? Cyber warriors, why the Russians want a deal? Arms control... Obama deliver. That's on the 65th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Lebanon, why Israel cannot afford another war. The Israeli helicopter crash. What was it doing in Romania anyway? Peace in Northern Ireland, a 200 bomb in Derry and a booby trap under a major's car says no. And, and Simon Fraser, the platinum dip. All in 30 minutes, we hope. Well, we start with Helmand. Months ago, commanders in Afghanistan talked openly about the coalition heading for Kandahar. Then the rhetoric cooled. For the past week, the MOD has been pushing the virtually unopposed combined British uh, Afghan army clearance of part of central Helmand, Operation Tor Shasada. Four hours ago, the MOD was briefing in Whitehall on the story so far. And then, interestingly, when they got to the bit about Kandahar, the line went down. This is the story of Kandahar. The BBC's defence correspondent, Nick Charles, was there. Uh, Nick, who said what before the line went down? Well, we had a briefing, Chris, from uh, the, you know, the, the main mouthpiece, I suppose, of the Ministry of Defence, uh, Major General Gordon Messenger, um, talking rather more, as you suggested, than he actually wanted to. We were hoping to hear from General Carter in Kandahar itself. Uh, but on Tor Shazada, uh, the message really was this was a tidying up post-Operation uh, Mushtarak, uh, that it was going pretty well in the, in, in, in the first few days, um, that there had been, uh, you know... Objectives met, and that one of the key points about this was that it was to stop freedom of movement of the opposition up and down some key north-south routes, which was which was quite interesting in terms of the rest of Helmand. I suppose the problem with it all is this tidying up post-Mushtarak bit, in a way, in the sense that supposedly Mushtarak should have been sorted by now, and the focus should have been on Kandahar. But of course, the uh, the, the story since the early days of Mushtarak were that it it was going slower and proving messier than they had anticipated. What happens to the argument that in the past uh, there's been a successful uh, operation um, and either against Taliban or Taliban have just sort of filtered away and as soon as um, you've gone, they're back? Yes, uh, that uh, has been raised. It was raised today. Uh, the, the pushback on that, if you like, from the Ministry of Defence was a that's been exaggerated in terms of what we've seen in the rest of Helmand. B, it's early days. They can't discount the fact that the, uh, the, you know, the local Taliban may have just hunkered down and mixed back into the population and those who are not non-local have just moved out of the area. Uh, the argument certainly put forward is that whether that is true or not, they are spreading the ink spot, if you like, of... A, a, a secure area, pushing out the contested area, and all the time they are taking, taking the better positions and pushing the Taliban into less comfortable uh, areas where they uh, you know, would prefer not to be. So, uh, you know, it's the ongoing process argument again, if you like, uh, hard pounding. Right. Uh, talking of hard pounding, uh, General David Petraeus, he's saying, he's been saying in the past uh, 24 hours, 
The strategy on Afghan civilian casualties, courageous restraint, it stays, doesn't it? Yes, uh, although, I mean, we've heard a lot recently about uh, looking both ways, apropos Af- Afghanistan, Pakistan. In a sense, I think David Petraeus, General Petraeus, uh, has been tr- trying to look two ways in his new directive in the sense that he's a very politically savvy uh, general. He picked up when he took over the job from General McChrystal that there were concerns from the ground up and, and he heard them in his confirmation hearing in the US Senate that courageous restraint was putting US forces in particular at e- extra risk. So he's, he said in his directive, yes, absolutely, you know, the population is the target in this sense that uh, they're the centre of gravity and it's got to be the Afghan people on the coalition's side. So not only should they maintain the reducing civilian casualties strategy, but actually, as he put it, redouble it. But he also reaffirmed the self-defence ethos and the self-defence argument uh, for the troops, I think, and it was a message to the troops that he understands that. How that will work out on the ground, though, uh, will be interesting to see in the coming uh, days and weeks of the operation, because the clarification that he said he put into his his directive is the one bit of it that remains classified for obvious tactical reasons. Right, Nick, stay with us a moment. I just want to bring in um, um, two people in the studio here because um, at the table, the former Daily Mail diplomatic editor, John Dickey, um, and from University College London, the Global Affairs Analyst, Dr Martin McCauley. Um, one of the things that David Petraeus uh, has, uh, has tried to, uh, uh, to, sort, to sort out, and that is the idea of Local militias, Martin. Um, it's the, the idea that you give local militias two regions, two, two governors, and you make it work. There's a huge danger, isn't there? A huge danger because there's always been local militias in Afghanistan. And uh, the, if they don't have very much firepower, uh, the Taliban will in fact uh, influence them. And, they, uh, and the Taliban will influence the governor as well. And if it's in a, a predominantly push-to area, then the Taliban uh, are in fact the push-to, and the push-to are the Taliban. So therefore, uh, it's it's if you like a way out for the Americans by saying we've got a local militias, they will take over the local areas and so on. But in reality, it basically means that there'll be a deal done with the Taliban. But I was reading Carlo uh, Ungaro, who is, I think a lot of people have read him over the past ten years or so. And here's a, a man who's worked in, as an, uh, a diplomat in, in Afghanistan, knows the area, and he was making the point, you give warlords militia, you're heading for a civil war. Uh, if they fall out, um, if you look at China before 1949, they, they, many of them didn't fall out um, they, if you divided up an area and you were OK. So therefore the warlords are OK, providing they can agree among themselves, but of course that's asking a lot. Right. John Dickey. Another interesting aspect of General Petraeus, aside from one that Nick Charles uh, uh, accurately emphasised, was that apart from being uh, very much uh, on the ball about not cutting uh, civilian casualties, was the necessity of being aware of the social customs. This is the point he made, I think, very effectively immediately after President Sadari in his outspoken interview with Le Monde in Paris had said that the, the NATO forces were losing the battle for the hearts and minds. Well, here comes uh, the element of the directive of uh, General Petraeus saying that 
In future, people going out on operations must be accompanied by local experts and as well as people going out on reconnaissance so that they will not offend the locals, for example, by uh, soldiers entering a house uh, uninvited when there are women present, which causes great offence. One must be aware of, of all these social and tribal uh, taboos which uh, will enable them to win the hearts and minds. Yeah, Nick, uh, Nick Chester, I was, I was looking at uh, some film from one of your colleagues um, uh, on on this operation, latest operation, and he had the uh, the guy that was leading the um, um, uh, the on on the operation. I think it's Major Mud. He was he had a good interpreter. He knew how to use an interpreter. You know, you don't just sort of look at the interpreter and say, right, tell him so and so or tell her so and so. He talked to the people, and the interpreter became his voice. That is a, a particular skill. And it is extraordinarily important that you've got it. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that has been one of the failures over a very long period. Uh, we've, you know, we've had this huge revelation about the WikiLeaks um, in, in, in intelligence leak that's, that's taken place. A lot of the detail of, of all those leaks, some would say, shows that you know, the lack of real intelligence, the lack of uh, real understanding, and that that's one of the things that they've clearly tried to change. Clearly, David Petraeus, on, on both fronts, on the militia front and, and on the intelligence front, he's taken experience from Iraq. Uh, clearly, it's a different case in Afghanistan, but he's emphasising this uh, partnering, both because that's the exit strategy, but also because on the civilian casualty front as well, you know, in, in terms of avoiding civilian casualties, if you have a partnered uh, unit, that can that can be much clearer in knowing where people are and where people have been and who they are, then that is going to help in whatever decisions that whatever the local commander is has to make and, and take his troops in with. Nick, it's, it's surprising, isn't it? I mean, when there is so much at stake in the, uh, the British contribution uh, in, in Afghanistan, that the word around Whitehall at the moment is that the, the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, is a bit under the cosh about getting all the plans that he wants to do and all the money that he needs for running an operation like Afghanistan, even if we are planning to start a, if you like, not necessarily a withdrawal, but a, a sort of slight pullout in, in, in 2014. I think it's a, it's a huge dilemma. Um, it's a perfect storm, if you like, of, of conflicting uh, issues that, uh, that the government in general, and he in particular, is having to face. There is the ongoing operation. There is the need to, to look to the future against the background not only of having to make budget cuts himself, but... It, in a budget that is already, by general consent, way out of kilter anyway. And, and clearly there is a problem with dealing with priorities. There is the uh, overall, if you like, historic game that is played in defence reviews of the, of the battles between the departments, which usually ends up with the Treasury and the civil servants dividing and ruling and the, uh, and the services uh, moving off in different directions and, and fighting amongst themselves. The one thing that he hasn't really been able to articulate is a vision thing, if you like, that can, can pull this all together. And I think that's part of his problem. It's also part of his problem that it's a different kind of defence review. It's not just a defence review. It's under the auspices of this new National Security Council and he's only a player in it with a few others. Nick Charles from BBC, thank you very much indeed. Um, John Dickey, it's an interesting side here, isn't it? Um, you know, the, the National De uh, Defence Council, etc. What's particularly important 
is that what this defence review is about is where Britain, where your lot at the Foreign Office, for example, where uh, Martin's lot in Downing Street, etc., where they see Britain being in 30 years' time. How the heck do you do that, John? You put your finger on it. That is a very challenging situation you're faced with. But on the plus side is the fact that for the first time for a long while, uh, the Foreign Office has been given its head to look further than just five or ten years. The strategy now is to look beyond and see where Britain's best interests lie, and that explains why, for example, the new Foreign Secretary, William Hague, has uh, singled out uh, the countries he wants to uh, look to in future, India, China, Brazil, uh, Turkey and, and Nigeria. And therefore, when you're looking at the defence requirements, you've got to take into account the sort of role that Britain's got to play. And therefore, in that sense, Liam Fox is not going to have a major role. And it's interesting, too, that as Cameron, uh, there's a political aspect here, as Cameron has moved more and more to the centre, uh, Liam Fox has found himself you know, rather isolated on the right. In fact, when the cabinet-making was process going on, there was a rumour running around that Liam Fox, then the shadow of defence, said was not going to get the job, it was going to go to Paddy Ashton. Yeah. Martin? The, Britain, looking 20, 30 years ahead, has to accept one thing. We will be minor players. You've got to get out of your mind that you're a major player, that you've got to shape events and so on. So you've got to, you've got to bring it down and look at India, look at China, and look at Brazil and accept... Uh, that you're just one of those players. Uh, Martin, there's a very practical side to this. I mean, you and I know from the past sort of, uh, I suppose, seven days of being hearing people saying this more strongly, and that is um, physically, because we've got nowhere else to put them, we've got army, for example, in Germany. But when this defence review gets underway properly, when they get down to basic nitty-gritties, we are going to start pulling out of Germany, aren't we? That's the way people are talking in Whitehall. They're going to say, why are we still there? Yes, I have, it's, it's, when you think about it, when you go to Germany and you talk to Germans, uh, some of them don't, don't know the British army is actually there. Are they still here? Because you don't see them. Uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, there were, there were military trains and everything, and you always saw the British army uh, uh, everywhere in West Germany, except not in the south, but in, in West Germany. And now... Uh, they will have to pull out because they will say, well, the, the threat uh, the threat is not from the east. Uh, the threat is further to the east. If you're looking for a potential threat, it has to come from China. And, of course, there's a country in between, and the, Ch and the Russians have recognised that the future threat to them is really from China. They don't say that yet, but uh, Russia will, in fact, uh, arguably become a player on our side. It, it, it makes sense. There is another point, of course, uh, apart from Germany, they may, they may be pulling out of parts of Cyprus. I mean, uh, this would be a, a great pity for all those uh, uh, people who are able to go to Episcopi and enjoy the sunshine, but that is one of the hard facts of the budget okay. uh, problem. I want a bit of hard fact for tonight, because there's din-dins tonight uh, between, at Chequers, that's the Prime Minister's country um, um, uh, house. Uh, it's between the Prime Minister David Cameron and President uh, Asif Ali Zadari of, uh, of Pakistan. Um, I'm not sure the dinner is between them, but they're having dinner together. Um, Mr Zadari, we know, says we're losing the war in Afghanistan. Mr Cameron says elements in Pakistan's inter-services intelligence, the ISI, are exporting terrorism and helping dissidents. On the line, the author of Descent into Hell and the Taliban, the Pakistan analyst Ahmed Rashid. Ahmed, uh, they're both right, aren't they? That's the problem. 
Well, exactly. Uh, that is the problem. Uh, there's no question that Pakistan's policy has changed over the last six to 12 months, but uh, the, the Afghan Taliban leaders are all still living in Pakistan. They have sanctuary there, and um, uh, the ISI, the army, is not doing anything about it. Ultimately, Zardari is responsible. Um, and, and I think what Zardari is looking for is some kind of recognition that, um, you know, Pakistan is changing. It's beset with huge problems. I mean, terrorism, uh, a, a crashing economy, and now, of course, the flood. Um, which have devastated the northwest where uh, the Pakistani Taliban are very active. So um, it's, it's, you know, it's uncertain how this dinner is, is, is going to be resolved and what the two are going to say to, in order to make up, because neither seem to be wanting to climb down. Yeah, I mean, what's particularly interesting is that people have been saying for a long time, including yourself, the ISI has been running, a certain part of the ISI has been running part of the insurgency. Why is ISI supporting Taliban when it does? Well, I think, you know, this goes back to the defeat of the Taliban in 2001 when the, uh, uh, when the Pakistan military sided with the um, uh, Americans. But when, when they saw, I think, the result of the Bonn Agreement and the government that came about in Afghanistan, which was largely made up of non-Pashtuns, that is, um, uh, uh, Tajiks and Uzbeks, people who had been very much um, opposed, uh, opposed to Pakistan and also allies of India and Iran. Um, ever since then, I think the Pakistanis decided that they would give sanctuary to the Taliban and allow the Taliban to restart the insurgency, which happened in 2003-2004. And um, uh, since then, of course, the uh, Afghan Taliban has spawned uh, the Pakistani Taliban. But now the Pakistan army is absolutely belligerent that uh, um, uh, India is being given enormous uh, weight and influence in Afghanistan by the Western alliance. And that is why uh, uh, they justify uh, their continuing support for the Taliban. Ahmed Rashid, thank you very much indeed. By the way, Descent into Hell and the Taliban. Good reads. Ought to be read by anybody who's going to have to serve there. Um, John Dickey, one thing that puzzles me in all these diplomatic things, um, we usually resolve them, don't we? Is it being blown up for something that it isn't? No, I think it's a new phase of, of Britain's foreign policy, and a good phrase. I mean, what has been said about Pakistan publicly has been said privately for the last two or three years. People like Hillary Sinat, the former High Commissioner in Pakistan, used to say that thing on instructions from London several times. It didn't get any attention. It was brushed aside. So naturally, it's got to be said, you know, straight to their faces. The trouble is that it's being said from the wrong place. If Cameron had said in Turkey mm. that Pakistan was looking both ways. Or in London. And then he had said in India that uh, Gaza was a prison camp. Uh, that would have got away a lot of the problem. It's because of the place in which the, uh, the statement was made has ruffled so many feathers. Martin, quickly. Uh, President Zardari is not as weak as some people think because he's got a powerful ally, and that powerful ally is China. And China's doing deals in Afghanistan and is apparently going to build two nuclear power stations in Pakistan. No one knows why, because uh, Pakistan has, has nuclear weapons. And China and Pakistan have the same ambition, exclude India from Afghanistan. Mm. Right. Um, nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons, incidentally, we're talking about there. We're talking about two countries, India and Pakistan. Don't forget that our nuclear powers. Um, it's the 65th anniversary this week of the dropping of the only 
uh, nuclear weapon ever used in anger um, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki during the Second World War. Coincidentally, or was it, on Tuesday a United States Senate committee shelved its endorsement of the would-be treaty, the so-called New START Treaty, that uh, that was one of the big gold pen affairs of this this year between the United States and Russia, limiting missiles and warheads. On the line from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Professor Paul Rogers. Paul, this is not the first time that an American president has talked big about nuclear arms control, only for Congress to kick it into the long grass. That's right, and the problem is that to actually ratify a treaty, you have to have a two-thirds majority in the Senate, and that means that while the Democrats have a majority, a straight majority, they don't have two-thirds, so he has to have some Republicans in. And the key committee which has been looking at this uh, has basically been prey to the fact that some of the Republicans want delays to consider things further. That kicks it into the long grass of the August holiday. And so this will come back to Congress, to Senate in particular, right at the time when you have the move towards the November elections. Uh, so it's really it's an annoyance for um, President Obama because he really did want to try and get this through so that further progress could be made. But on the Republican side, you still have this age-old issue about not doing deals which in any sense might tie the United States down in the future. But the problem is that if without this going forward, the chances of getting ratification of what's probably the more important treaty, the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, are really pushed down. So it, it's not easy for Obama. He's, he's going to have to push this very hard to get it through. And you go to the November elections. Yeah. Um, now... For those are sort of slightly forgotten, Obama, remember, is, uh, is, is, a, is a Democrat and therefore he's got a Democrat hold on the Senate at the moment, at least, least eight Republicans he needs at the moment. Yeah. Now, come the elections, in, there might be more Republicans. Therefore, there is no way that this is going to get through. Well, the only thing is that there is what is called the lame duck period after the elections when the old Senate is still in post for a couple of months. Under those conditions, it is just possible that he might get it through. It also depends on what happens in the elections. Obama was looking very weak until recently. Things have changed rather. The easing of the the Gulf oil spill thing is one, uh, and there are other issues that are quite positive for him. But in overall terms, it's going to be difficult, and as I say, this doesn't just make this difficult. It makes the follow-on, the Test Ban Treaty, tricky as well. The United States has signed that but not ratified it. Um, Cyber warfare, while we're on, uh, I mean, the latest command in the United States, um, up and running by October, Russians are already saying, I think we ought to have a treaty on limiting activity. That's really intriguing. There's been a UN group of experts trying to sort this out for years, and they met last week, uh, 15 states, and they actually began to look like they might get an agreement. It was a curious mix. There was the US, Russia, China, and India, and then some relatively small countries that are big on IT powerhouses. There was Israel, South Korea, and Estonia, who'd had a real spat with the Russians not long ago. What's really interesting is that they seem to have made some progress. The, the Russians seem to come on board with the other states and say, we've got to try and share something about strategies and try and strengthen protection. So that, that's a turn-up for the book. <laughs> I think the reality is that, yeah, you can play cyber war, but it can be played against you. Uh, and there might actually be scope for getting some sort of an agreement, really against the odds. It was a surprising result. I was going to say we can, I can see a film coming here, yes. but frankly, we've already seen so many of them. Yes. <laughs> Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. By the way, next week we'll be doing the whole programme on cyber warfare. What is it? Who does it? What could it do? Could it, for example, knock out a military operation by inserting false orders? 
that no one would know until it all went wrong. Nutty stuff? Not a bit. Tune in next Thursday, 4.30 UK time. Cyber warfare, or us. OK, um, I'll talk about quickly Northern Ireland. Um, Northern Ireland was supposed to be a peace agreement, wasn't it, in, in, in 1998. This week we have a £200 bomb uh, shoved up against the police headquarters in, in Derry. We have a major driving out of his drive yesterday morning, uh, seeing, seeing a booby trap bomb fall off. Uh, dissidents do well, don't they, John? They do indeed. Uh, I wonder whether there's a philistine amongst them uh, who resents the fact that Derry has been named uh, the city of culture and he just resents the fact that uh, Derry should get mixed up with culture. Especially, but, the, especially the police service in Northern Ireland. <laughs> indeed, but uh, it's just another horrid example of the way there are these rogue elements who are trying to upset the whole process. I think Martin. there is a small number uh, who who have nothing else to do. Uh, if they sit and do nothing, uh, they're bored to death. And therefore, you have this small element who have access... The interesting thing is they've got access to all these bombs and all these bullets and so on, and they also have expertise. So therefore, they're not amateurs. Uh, but you just have to accept that there is this small number, I don't know, 20, 30, 40? 100. 100. Uh, and uh, they will carry on irrespective of what type of agreement is reached between Sinn Féin and the unions. OK, any other business? Uh, we've got four minutes. Uh, John, Israel helicopter crashed uh, this week in Romania, uh, a CH-53, six Israelis and one Romanian killed, taking part in Blue Sky 2010. It's, a, it's supposed to be low altitude in difficult terrain for search and rescue stuff. You've got a different version, haven't you? Well, it's suddenly become uh, clear that this was no... Uh, uh, sort of uh, move out of the blue. It, it's part of an agreement that was signed last month <laughs> to enable the Israelis to prepare for uh, their attack on Iran. They're taking it seriously because this place, Busau, where the crash took place and uh, six uh, air crew uh, and one Romanian guide were killed, happens to be about the same distance uh, from um, Israel, uh, as is Iran. And therefore, this agreement enables them to prepare for uh, helicopter transport arrangements and search and rescue arrangements in the sort of terrain. It's in the southwest of, of the country, very similar to Iran. Bit cynical, John, bit cynical. Listen, Martin, uh, next point. Iran, um, President Ahmadinejad, um, going along in, a, I just about to say bombing along, but going along in a convoy, and somebody either threw a, a firecracker in delight that he was there or somebody threw a hand grenade. Now, hand grenades usually kill people, so nobody was killed. Now, what's going on? Is somebody trying to put one on him? <clears throat> if you look at the pictures, the only pictures I've seen, uh, the Secret Service people around him were alarmed and all rushing to protect him and so on. Uh, and, and if you're a real cynic, you might say, if you were Machiavellian, you'd say, well, the Revolutionary Guard set up a firecracker because this will then allow them to crack down even more on the opposition and so on and accuse them of trying to assassinate the president and so on. So uh, Iranian politics is murky, uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see the response of the Revolutionary Guards to this event. OK, John, uh, can we just do a minute with uh, Iraq? I saw some figures this week which says that it's... Um, because we ignore Iraq, we shouldn't do. It says that the armed conflict continues to kill far more civilians in Iraq than we do in Afghanistan. That is a terrible uh, indictment of the, the post-war period. It's a frightening figure and a frightening commentary on the fact that, after all, the 
energy and lives and money spent to try and bring stability to that country, it's still in a state of chaos. They haven't even got a government. Uh, and uh, Obama's determined that uh, come the time, uh, end of the month, they'll yeah. be out. Yes, uh, just another quick one. Simon Fraser is a name that I remember from a book of yours, but I mean ages ago, as a high flyer. It's sort of a, a Sir Humphrey figure, but he's the new permanent understatement, in other words, the, the head of the Foreign Commonwealth Office. He's only 52. Where does this man come from? Does his mum pick him up in the Volvo at five? Well, no, he's, he's been very sharp. He started off in Baghdad and then went to Damascus and then... Uh, uh, he's been groomed uh, as a great strategist. He came over from Paris and, and formed... A, there was a, a planning department in the, in the Foreign Office. That was scrapped, and this new department dealing with strategy and initiative is just up his street. Uh, but he's a, a businessman as well. He's got a business sense? Oh, yes, and he served in the European Commission. He's a very bright man. 